was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 7. Thanks for joining us in the Cubbyhole this week. As ever, do make yourself at home. We believe the key to a great podcast is not who or what or when, but why. And what better reason than a mutual love of the James Bond franchise between hosts and listeners. Speaking of which, we have full podcast coverage, something not even Elliot Carver achieved with his media empire, although I'm sure he probably would have if podcasts had existed back in 1997. Uh, You can find us on all good podcasting apps and websites. So do share the show with any fellow Bond-loving friends and family. Also, wherever you're listening, please do consider leaving us a review. Naturally, we have the largest audience in English-speaking countries, but uh, I noticed we've recently charted in Germany, Italy, and Japan, so feel free to leave a comment in your native language. We'll get Phil in QBranch to decode your messages. And of course, we'd love you to get involved with the show over on social media, and do continue sending your interesting questions and topic ideas to our email address, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our last episode, we spoke to Vijay Amritraj about his fond memories of working with Sir Roger Moore on Octopussy. We discussed our 007 best villain deaths of the series, and Phil shared his odd vision for Bond 26, Lee Temahori and Mark Forster joining forces to create a mediocre film. Luckily, these cubbyhole episodes don't have such a nightmare directing team. Let's introduce my co-hosts. Firstly, he's the Mr. Kid to my Mr. Wint. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm very well looking forward to um, to episode seven. As ever, we'd normally do our um, our social media shout outs at this point in time. But today we've actually got um, a bit of a special occasion because we've actually hit two milestones on our Facebook and Twitter sites. So we recently hit 100 followers on Facebook um, and 700 followers on our Twitter account. So um, really, it's just a huge thank you to everybody that's been following us and been getting involved with the show and and obviously, you know, commenting and sending in your questions. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. And secondly, he's the shady tree to my acorns. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? You lousy double-crossing limey fink. Uh, I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you. Phil, something else that will interest you. There's yet more crazy expensive new merchandise from the James Bond uh, merchandise store. Did you see this? There's an £800 yes, £800, uh, replica of the Golden Gun from the man with the Golden Gun, which you can assemble from uh, the three bits. Are you, are you excited about that? Is, are you finally going to splash out on something from um, your favourite internet website? Yeah, I mean, £800 for a replica is not really what I'd, I'd like to see. I did actually see recently, um, they did start doing a few kind of model cars and, um, you know, model kits, which were which were of interest for about sort of 15 to £20. Pounds. So the premium products are, are, are a bit hit and miss, I think. I didn't really get the point of spending £800 pounds for a golden gun, because I think when the last one auctioned, which was a real one that Christopher Lee used in the films, that only went for about a couple of grand, like two or three grand. So surely you're better off saving up a little bit more 
if you want to get one and then just buy the real one at auction. Yeah, I agree with that, Adam. Quite ridiculous. I'm, I'm with you now, Phil, on the ridiculous prices of the 007 store. I think they're sold out as well. I think it was a limited run of replicas. I guess there is some element of exclusivity, isn't there? I think I would be willing to, to do a little deal on there, a little discount deal that they should do, which is instead of £800 a piece for a Golden Gun replica and Octopus's bathrobe, maybe just the two of them for 1200 I mean, I'd, I'd be sort of semi-tempted by that. So they'll be charging 50,000 baht for that wooden elephant soon, wouldn't they? That's about 1,500 quid. I think we need, we need to sort of engineer a situation where Maud Adams emerges from her LA home in the octopusy nightgown with a wooden elephant in one hand and the golden gun in the other. And it's just some random pizza delivery boy giving an absolute shock. A water pistol. Pass me that rope. Turn her around. You always take a shower with a pistol? Put your hands up and get out of here. So it's the first segment of the show on the scene. And this week, we hope you've read section 26, paragraph 5, Strictly Need to Know, because we're going to analyze Bond's mission to protect General Koskov during his supposed defection from the KGB. But first, let's get a reminder of what happens with Mr. Alan Partridge. At a stuffy classical concert in Bratislava, Welsh Bond meets officious Killjoy Saunders. You're bloody late. This is a mission, not a fancy dress ball. We have time. Saunders points out their defector Yogi Bear, but Bond's more interested in eyeing up cello playing Barbie with his pervy binoculars. After getting shushed by some old biddies, they go over the road where Bond does up his tux and asks for some big boy bullets for the massivest movie gun since Scarface. What's your escape route? Sorry, old man. Section 26, paragraph 5. That information is on a need-to-know basis only. I'm sure you understand. They set up shop on the balcony, Bond has to turn Saunders' perv glasses on for him, and then sits looking miserable for a bit. It'll take Costco ten seconds to reach us, then you have time for a KGB sniper to make strawberry jam of him. Yogi Bear makes a mad run for it out the bog window, but Cello playing Barbie's the sniper, so Bond lets her off with a flesh wound. Saunders is hopping mad, then mental Welsh Bond makes it even worse by chucking Yogi Bear out the car boot, giving Saunders the boot, and buggering off with his wheels. How will you get him out? Sorry, old man. Section 26, paragraph 5. Need to know. Sure you understand. Oh, burn! Take that, bitch! The end. Thanks a lot, Ellen, for that nice summary there of the scene. Yeah, really quite entertaining, this scene. I feel the uh, the dynamic that we have between Bond and Saunders. I guess it kind of reflects the uh, the Bond that Dalton was trying to portray, the one of the books, an assassin who prefers to work alone, who doesn't actually enjoy killing people, but it's just part of his job. And we certainly get that through Dalton's performance, the dialogue, and the, the physicality of the scene. Um, and yeah, I do enjoy Saunders, obviously, would not make the top seven list of, of allies, would he? But he is quite an enjoyable character. I just love this scene because it kind of sets up the whole film, really, for us. Um, Dalton's ability to kind of create that kind of moodier character that we haven't, we haven't really seen that since... Um, you know, the days of Connery and there are sort of undertones of kind of from Russia with love in this sequence where it's, you know, it's very shadowy, very, um, you know, kind of cloak and dagger almost back to basics espionage really that Bond is having to do. You get this juxtaposition of the kind of glamour of the the orchestral um, scene and then it moves to the very shadowy, very dark scenes of the of the streets and there's very, very little light in throughout the scene and 
It's also quite interesting. This is one of the few scenes in the Bond franchise where it's filmed from the point of view of the um, the supporting cast member because you see it from the um, the night vision of Saunders' um, goggles. So it's quite interesting that they chose that angle as well. Yeah, that's a really key uh, point, Phil, about that um, that subjective view, but not from Bonds from Saunders because we, like him, are a bystander. We're not in the shoes of Bond. We're kind of at a distance from him, which of course fits how um, Dalton is going to play the character. And we heard via John Orty, John Glenn, the director, saying in the opening sequence of Living Daylights, he has four minutes to sell Dalton as Bond to the audience. We're now establishing just how very different to Roger Moore Dalton's going to be and how seriously he's going to take this role. And, and of course, that means harkening back to the Cold War edge that uh, Fleming's novels have. And of course, that symbolism is present throughout this scene in those dark shadows that you've, you've mentioned, but also in just the, the Marxist Cold War symbolism. We're in a communist country. There's a poster of Karl Marx in the sort of shop that uh, they go across the road to uh, to um, monitor Costco from. When they set up on the balcony, they're actually pointing the big rifle through the big communist sickle, which is on the building. I'm, uh, I'm always interested by Saunders' character in that he, he tells Bond that he's planned this to the last detail, but I'm not quite sure what he's actually planned. It just seems like he's, his plan was to lay out the gun for Bond on the bed. Other than that, he hasn't planned anything because he didn't know that Bond was the one who was going to do the job until, I guess, the last minute. And then he also planned to put Koskov in the boot, which, as Bond says, that's the first place they'll look at the uh, at the border. Yes, he is a bit of a pen pusher and a bit of a desk jockey, but, you know, he is just trying to do his his job. And obviously he's not aware that Koskov is, is faking his um, defection to the West. And it's Bond is doesn't really appreciate him sort of meddling in the situation because he's obviously, you know, he's, we see particularly with the scene where he adjusts his night goggles as well, where it's, you know, he kind of does it in a very frustrated way because it's almost like he's getting in the way of what Bond needs to do. Well, I think there are a few layers to what's going on, isn't there? I mean, when Saunders meets Bond, he, he sort of explains that he's got a lot professionally at stake in this operation. It's his baby. And he knows Bond only by reputation. And he's worried about that. And so he's sort of nervous about the fact that Bond, who's a bit of a loose cannon, has been sent. But at the same time, and, and this operation is absolute crap. I mean, Bond does say, oh, he's far too far away from us. There's loads of time for this sniper. And then when Koskov gets to the door, he's left banging on it for about 10 seconds while Saunders runs down the stairs with the keys. But is it Saunders' idea, this operation? Like, is it not just Koskov's idea, the whole thing? And that's why it's so elaborate and a bit rubbish, because... You know, you know, when he stands up and applauds Kara, it's it's very definitely a signal for her to get in position. So it's it's Koskov masterminding the whole thing. And I think Dalton's bond smells a rat, which, of course, is why part of his reservedness in the scene is, is all about fooling Saunders. He already knows he's going to nick off with the car and send him in the queue pipeline with Julie T. Wallace at the station. He knows that that's what's going to happen. One of the best moments is when he just gets his tuxedo. He just pulls across the... Um, you know, the black bit of jacket just to cover it over. So he's, he's kind of even more stealthy in his, his movement. It's just, it's just the way he kind of almost glides across the room as well. It's just so elegant. Again, it kind of, it resonates that it, it's almost going back to the Connery era. It's going back to, you know, the scenes where it's um, Bond and Kerrin Bay when they're assassinating Bay's enemy and things like that. Yeah, talking of which, one of my favourite bits is where he kind of uh, looks up in indignation when uh, when Saunders says, old man. Uh, a lovely little callback to from Russia with Love and Red Grant. But really interesting that you mentioned that he smells a rat, Adam, uh, and maybe the audience are not sure as well. Maybe Saunders is is this Red Grant character. We don't know yet. 
Yeah, and the, that sort of distrust and that not being sure of one another is there in the dialogue as well, isn't it? It's incredibly terse, you know, it, it conveys all the necessary information very quickly to set the stakes, but it also gets the fact that these two men don't really know each other very well yet, and, and so they're tiptoeing around it a bit. But yeah, I know what you mean on, on uh, the tuxedo costume. It is the symbol of Dalton's bond, isn't it? The elegance, the classiness, becoming the killer in like the blink of an eye. Also the fact that he asked for the steel tip bullets. I mean, he means business, doesn't he? Roger Moore would have probably just gone for a water pistol. Yeah, I think you're right, Adam. But I think it also shows his kind of, his background knowledge of the enemy, really, because of the fact he's saying, you know, obviously KGB snipers tend to wear body armour. Going back to the concert hall setting as well, because it is very different and much more sophisticated and upper class than anything we've seen in Bond before. And I think there are a couple of bits in this sequence which establish its credentials as a great suspense sequence, because they're kind of very deliberately riffing other films. I mean, the concert hall brings to mind the end of Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, where there's a great, very famous suspense sequence with an assassin again at uh, the Royal Albert Hall. And also Koskov escaping via the bathroom and using the sound of uh, the flushing toilet to cover his escape. It's very like that scene in The Godfather in the Italian restaurant where Michael has to retrieve a gun from the toilet that's been planted for him to assassinate the men who tried to kill his father. And again, he's using the, uh, the old-fashioned flusher to cover his actions there. We should do a quick word on John Barry's music as well, shouldn't we? Because he, he withholds for pretty much the entire scene. When it finally comes in, it's great, isn't it? It's at exactly the right time when Koskov is out in the open. There's those sort of metronomic notes that just keep building and building until we have the climax of the gunshot. Yeah, I kind of find it funny when he's running across the street and he kind of looks up at the window. I guess surely that should be a little bit of a hint that uh, that he's in on this plan. And then later in the car, he says that it's uh, the best snipers in the KGB are often females. Uh, so I guess there should be a, a seed of, uh, of doubt in, in Bond's mind there. Yeah, I do like that Saunders says, uh, forget the ladies for once, Bond. So they don't know each other, but uh, Bond's reputation definitely precedes him. But bearing in mind, that is a bit unfair to Dalton's Bond because that, that comment is based upon the Bond that has previously existed, i.e. Sir Roger Moore, who, who may very well have stuffed up this uh, assassination by just staring at all the women in the orchestra. Yeah, I suppose so. And even the, I guess all, most of the dialogue in this scene, actually, I'm not sure you could imagine Roger Moore. So, I mean, he, he, he might say Strawberry Jam, but he'd say it in a very different way. Oh, what a lovely lady with the cello. It's all about how you pluck when you play the cello. Excuse me, I'm going to attach another string to my bow. I'm reporting to M that you deliberately missed. Your orders were to kill that sniper. Stuff my orders. I only kill professionals. Girl didn't know one end of a rifle from the other. Go ahead, tell him what you want. If he fires me, I'll thank him for it. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. So it's time for the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. I'm sure our guest this week will raise a few eyebrows. Who joined us this time, Adam? I'm sure he will, yes. So this week we were joined by Gareth Owen, who for 16 years was the personal assistant to Sir Roger Moore. Uh, and so was with him from the early noughties until uh, Sir Roger passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, he's written about his experiences with uh, Sir Roger in the book, Raising an Eyebrow, My Life with Sir Roger Moore. Without any further ado, let's go over to Gareth. But the question we always start with, with all of our guests, is, is kind of, just learning where and when you got into the James Bond films, you know, what were your earliest experiences of them? Well, yeah, I'm a child of the 70s, you see. So I grew up in the uh, the early, well, I grew up throughout the 70s, but early 70s onwards, when Roger became Bond, I was born. Um, my first Bond film at the cinema was Spy Love Me, and I was four. 
And you can imagine a four-year-old boy sitting in a cinema watching this parachute jump. I mean, it's like, wow. And then the villain Jaws, the underwater Lotus car. It's like a whole new world opening up. So to me, this was a fantastic, exciting new world. And James Bond was something I identified with as being what I wanted to be. And of course, Roger was my first Bond. So he was my Bond. You know, whenever anybody said, who's your favourite, it was always Roger Moore simply because he was my first. And I think that's true to a lot of people. You know, if you grow up watching Daniel Craig as Bond, he's probably your favourite. If you grow up watching Sean Connery, you'll probably still maintain he's the best. And, you know, he is the best in a way because he defined the role, he created the role, and he was the first Bond. So Roger would always say, I'm people's favourite, but Sean is still the best. The early chapters uh, sort of paint a really fascinating picture of, of your early sort of days in the film industry and, and also those relationships you had with other Bond alumni, thinking of Walter Gattel, who played General Gogol, and, and Richard Keel, of course, Jaws. Well, Walter was my landlord. I lived uh, with him for a year, him and his wife, Celeste. Um, it was really strange in that I got to, got to know Walter on a social level. And when I left university and moved down to London, moved into Pinewood, he said to me, where are you going to live? And I, I said, well, I'm not sure at the moment. I'll just find somewhere temporary and then start looking around. And he said, well, we have a spare room. Would you like to come you know, stay with us? And I said, oh, he said, we won't charge you much. And Walter was a gregarious character. He, he was larger than life and he loved to drink. You know, I'd go in 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening and he'd be sitting there with a glass of scotch and thrust one at me. And I'd say, no, I don't, I don't drink scotch. I don't like scotch. Never mind, have one. And he loved to talk. You know, he would talk about his career. He'd talk about the people he'd worked with. He introduced me to, I remember he introduced me to his wife. He said, this is Celeste. She used to be beautiful once. And <laughs> I didn't quite know what to say in response, actually. Uh, and then a few years later, I got to know Richard Keel. And um, he was a, a lovely man, gentle giant, gentle giant. Anybody who ever met him would, would say to you, you know, he, he sort of looked at you. And you thought, my God, he, you know, this man is capable of killing me. You know, his hands are so big. Uh, but he was such a gentleman. And um, I looked after him when he came to London and I helped him get a publisher for his memoir. And, and I travelled around with him on book tours and publicity tours. And, and it was quite strange because, you know, I had to hire a car. He, he'd never fit in my car. So he and his wife, Diane, would come over and I'd hire a people carrier. And he'd arrive with his boxes of books, his his walking frame, his big stick, clothes, you know, suitcase full of clothes. And he'd get in the car and the car would just tilt to one side with the weight. And uh, he just loved Bond. He loved being an ambassador. You know, he loved talking about Bond. He loved talking about being Jaws. You know, whenever he went through the airport, they'd always give him VIP treatment because you can't miss this guy. And he's seven foot two and a half. And they'd sort of whisk him through and, and they love it. You know, can we have a photograph with you? Yeah, he'd say, do you want me to smash your head? And he'd put his hands around, <laughs> around their head. I have to say, one of my favourite images from your book is, is later on when I think it's Richard Keel, Sir Roger and Christopher Lee all at dinner together. And I'd, I'd always thought, what would it be like being in the restaurant at the same time looking over to that table? You'd, you'd be surprised at what was happening, I think. Yeah, it was at the Ivy in London. Maud Adams was there too, because um, Richard was oh, over wow. um, trying to get a film together. And he wanted Roger to be in it. And he, he had a part for Christopher Lee. And so he offered them, you know, Richard said, can we meet for lunch? And Maud Adams was in town. And um, yeah, I mean, you imagine these people sitting around a table talking about a film part. Talk us through the process of how you went from being a, a producer to being Sir Roger's personal assistant. And what exactly, for the benefit of the listeners, did that job kind of entail, I guess? 
So I wanted to write a book about the making of Pinewood through the eyes of the people who work there. And I wrote the Pinewood story. And I asked Roger if he would write the foreword. And he said, yeah, OK, fine. So that was that was good. And and I guess as a result of that, I got to know his secretary, Doris, um, quite well. And Doris, I'm still in touch with her. She's 97, but we email each other virtually every day. And Doris at the time was a total technophobe. She had a typewriter and a fax machine. And that was the high tech office. And I had this thing called the Internet which she thought was magical because I could look up things that would take her a week if she went down the library to do research. And so it was really getting to know Doris. And then I got to know a little bit about Roger. And Doris got to a point where around about the end of 2001, she decided to retire. She was in her 70s. And she said, I've had a chat with Roger and he wants to keep the office open. He's had an office at Pinewood since 1970. Wants to keep the office open, has asked me to find someone to run it and I said well I work cheap and she said right um I've spoken to him about you and I, I, I sort of did a double take I said what she said I have spoken to him about you do you want the job and I didn't know whether it was a wind-up or whether she was serious but she she was she was deadly serious she said you know it's not just about running the office it's about looking after his travel it's about liaising with UNICEF it's about liaising with any productions that come in uh you'd have to travel with him look after him shield him and, and it was literally agreed. That was it. And I said, well, does he want to talk to me about it? She said, no, no, he's quite happy. I said, no interview, no interview. And I literally, that was it. I, 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 I literally got the job. I, I emailed Roger and I said, thank you very much. I sent him a rude joke and uh, he said, great, let's have more of those. That's great. And you've, have you managed to, uh, I guess, in those early days, was it, it sounds like it was a very fast transition between kind of Roger's employee to being one of his closest friends was it uh, was it a speedy process or did it did you feel like um, it took a few years to get to know him properly it, it, it took it, it took a little while because obviously I had to you know, sound him out a little bit I wasn't quite sure you know what every day would entail and he phoned up and he said hi how are you and uh, he said right just to let you know uh, some days will be quiet some days will be busy some days I'll need you to maybe make a few phone calls write a few letters uh, other days it might be you know, lays with UNICEF about what might be happening in the coming weeks, organised travel plans. And, and he said, you know, I might occasionally get the odd fan mail, you know. He said, the old lady still writes. And, yeah, and I did get to know him. I got to know his sense of humour a bit better. We started taking the fun out of each other, you know, so we, 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 we'd rib each other a little bit. And, uh, and we started developing a friendship. And he invited me to go out to Switzerland to stay with them for a week. And I thought that's really nice, you know, because he's when I got there, he said, you're not here to work. You're here to enjoy yourself. And so he took me all around the best restaurants. and <laughs> uh, I went shopping with him and to the supermarket. And it was just nice getting to know him in a, a sort of out of office environment where he wasn't playing a film star. He was just Roger Moore in a sweater and a pair of old corduroy trousers. And we go for a walk. We watch movies and um we just sort of sit and enjoy chatting. So it was nice to get to know him that way. And, and kind of as you were getting to, to know the real um, Sir Roger, um, what were the aspects of his, of his personality and his lifestyle that you found particularly, I guess, charming, but also quite surprising that, that you might not have expected sort of when you first kind of went into the role? Well, he's very down to earth, you know, very easygoing at home. He'd love to sit in front of the TV and watch old comedy shows, have beans on toast 
or or you know like a plowman's lunch or something like that very simple it was quite bizarre because you know one minute we'd be sitting there talking about the weather the next minute he'd be saying i made this film with gregory peck you know and and he starts talking about gregory peck and david niven as though i'm sort of part of their circle and then obviously when we were out and about a little bit he did put on a slight show in that he was roger moore he would always if we went to a restaurant he'd always wear a nice shirt with a tie Christina always said to him, when we're out and about, you have to look smart. Because if you look like a tramp, people will undoubtedly take a photograph of you. It'll appear in a newspaper and this hasn't Roger Moore let himself go. And, uh, and then when he came to London, it was almost as though it was a different life. Because in Switzerland, in Monaco, you're amongst millionaires. You're amongst people who don't bother you. When he arrives in London, everybody's pointing and, and, you know, I'm walking down Piccadilly with him and people are coming up to him for his autograph. And you see a different side to him. And he was always very charming. You know, I mean, sometimes he'd say something to me under his breath. Um, but uh, he was always very charming and would always sign an autograph and always pose for a photograph. And, uh, and you know, and it, was, it was nice to see that side of him too. And Sir Roger also kept quite a close-knit um kind of community of friends as well. Did you ever sort of share experiences with them, sort of like Sir Jeremy Collins or Sir Michael Caine? Was it sort of a case yeah, of he invited? Uh, yeah, he did. He was very nice. Whenever he had a, a birthday, when he was in London, uh, he would have a birthday dinner. And he invited me many times. And um, I think it was his 75th birthday. I had been working for him that long, maybe six months, seven months. And he said, oh, we're having this bit of a dinner in, um, in Hush in London. Would you like to come? And I said, oh, yes, please. And he said, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to send you the guest list and they're going to RSVP to you. And it was like, you know, Joan Collins phoning up, Michael Caine phoning up, Michael Winner phoning up. I'm thinking, my God, you know, this is fantastic. And I went to this dinner and, you know, we're, we're all there together. We're all, uh, I, my God, these are people I've seen on the big screen. And Michael Caine came over to me and said, hello, I'm Mike. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but Roger treated me, you know, his family were there. And Roger treated me as part of the family in a way. And never in any way looked down his nose at me and said, oh, you know, you go and sit over there or anything. No, I was always at the heart of it. Uh, yeah, I just want to pick you up on the food thing, actually, because it, it does, from your book, seem like he had, a, he had a very interesting relationship with food. On the one hand, as you say, a, a real fan of fine dining, a new kind of exactly, in some cases, unusual combinations, what to order in restaurants, but also loved his comfort foods as well. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he would say, for instance, we were in a very nice restaurant in Italy, and he said, we'll have a risotto, seafood risotto. And he said, take a Jack Daniels on the side. I said, I don't like it. No. And he said, pour it onto the risotto, pour it onto the rice. And he said, it's a fantastic flavour. He would love to go to pubs when he was in the UK. He would love to go to a good pub and have a proper pub meal. So it'd be sausage and mash, pie and chips, fish and chips. Um, you know, all the comfort foods from his childhood. And, uh, and if he liked the pub, we'd always make a point of trying to go back there, either on the return journey or the next journey. And we got to know quite a few of the landlords quite well. And it was quite bizarre because um, I think there were at least three or four when we returned, they refused to charge him because they said after you came last time, we had so much publicity, we can't thank you enough. Yeah, I just remembered he, he famously claimed to have invented the, the Magnum ice cream. Well, mm. Where do you stand on those claims, Gareth? Did it... He said years and years ago, um, he, loved, he loved dark chocolate. Chock ices, I'm trying to think of the words, sorry, chock ices. But he said the problem was they would always melt. 
and run down your fingers. And one day he was doing an interview for some highfalutin magazine. And they, I think they were interviewing four or five people. And they said, if you could meet somebody in your life, dead or alive, who would you want to meet? And of course, you know, the replies came, oh, I'd like to meet Gandhi. I'd like to meet, you know, a king or a queen, or I'd like to meet Nelson Mandela. And Roger said, I'd like to meet Mr. Walls. I know what? He said, well, I'd like to know why you can't make a chalk ice on a stick so it doesn't all run down your fingers. Oh, okay. And he said, people poo-pooed me. He said, but did they meet Gandhi? Did they meet Nelson Mandela? I got a call from Mr. Walls. And Roger maintains he invented the chalk ice on a stick, which became the Magnum. Um, you, you co-wrote with him uh, the books that he wrote mm. sort of later in his career, looking back. So famously his memoir, My Word is My Bond, and then Bond on Bond, which I, I read a few years ago. Uh, what was the process like of sort of co-writing those books together? And how did he generally find the experience of, of looking back over his, his life and career? Well, he always said he would never write a book, never write a memoir. And, and Christina said, you work so well together. And uh, she said, I keep telling Roger he should write a book, but he won't. She said, if he did, would you work with him on it? And I said, yeah, of course I would. Yeah, fine. She said, there you go, Roger. You can't get out of it now. Well, he said, I, I don't want to do a kiss and tell. He said, I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody or, or, or tell stories about my former wives. He said, it's not fair. I said, it doesn't matter. You tell what you want to tell. You know, it's your book. So he then said to me, you've got me into this. You can bloody well write it with me. I then, I think it was just after Christmas, I then went to Switzerland for two weeks. Uh, I sat down with him and I said, what I want you to do is basically talk. I'll ask you some questions. I'll record it. And I want to record it like a conversation. And I spent two weeks with him, really seven, eight hour days, talking about his life, his career, talking about films, people he knew, places he'd been. And then I went away and I spent a couple of weeks putting it all together. And... We then spoke on the phone. We spoke over Skype. He then wrote bits and pieces. He wrote, he wanted to write about his childhood. So he wrote 30, 40 pages about his childhood. That was important to him. And, and it sort of just, it, it just became a sort of collaboration across email and Skype. And then I went back to Switzerland again to spend a week to help polish it up. And it happened fairly quickly. It all happened within probably six or seven months. Yeah, because because you were his on-stage interviewer um, for, for many mm. years on those book tours. Are, are there any particular shows or, or kind of locations on those tours that, that sort of particularly stand out as being great memories, either because they were particularly funny or there was a great interaction with the audience or, or things like yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, that came about, again, simply because I got him into it, as he said, so you're bloody well going to have to share it with me. Um, and we agreed to do seven, and he said, look, I can't go on stage and talk for an hour and a half or two hours, because he said, I'll either repeat myself, I'll make a fool of myself, or I'll waffle, or I'll go off subject, or I won't talk about what I should talk about. And he said, so if I'm going to do this, you're going to do it as well. Uh, and he loved the interaction with the audience. He loved the questions from the audience. And um, I think two of the best audiences were Brighton and Liverpool. Brighton were quite filthy, because he was talking about the Persuaders, and he said, I had a choice of co-stars. Uh, he said Rock Hudson was one, but I thought he and I were two alike. And they went, whoa, go on, Rog. He said, not like that, you dirty-minded bastards. He said, tall, good-looking. Um, but no, Liverpool and uh, came to questions. This guy put his hand up and Roger said, yeah, go on. He said, you know, I'm sitting here. He said, I'm looking at you. He said, you're in your 80s. You're looking very smart, very dapper. He said, you've got a beautiful wife up there in the audience. And he said, you know what I'm thinking? 
And Roger said, no, what, what? He said, you lucky bastard. He said, well, he said, right, tell me, Rog, what I really want to know is, did you get to sleep with all the Bond girls? And Roger said, you can't ask me that. My wife's up there. He said, go on, tell us. Do you give him a little shag? Go on. And Roger started laughing. I mean, he was gone. He was just laughing his head off. There seems to be a universal love for um, for Roger, mm. Sir Roger Moore and his kind of his legacy. Do you think he was almost kind of one of a kind as a as a personality that we'll probably never see his like again in terms of you know just how loving and how warm he was? Yeah, I think so because he loved Bond. He said, "Look, you know, Sean won't talk about Bond. He resents it. You know, he's got a big chip on his shoulder." He said, "As far as I'm concerned, Bond gave me financial security for the rest of my life." It gave me international recognition around the world, which enabled me in my work as UNICEF to get to meet presidents, to get to meet prime ministers, to get to meet important decision makers in countries that nobody else can get into. And he said, Bond has given me so much. And he said, and, you know, to still talk about it and people to still be interested. He said, it's wonderful. He said, how can I possibly resent James Bond? And whenever a Bond film was coming out, he would do chat shows and interviews and news reports and and he would talk so positively about james i mean he would talk positively about daniel craig because he loved him and he'd say daniel's the best bond fantastic wonderful bond and and eon had a great ambassador and and he got on very well with barbara broccoli she came to some of his dinners and um she had the office at pinewood next door to us and you know it was a great family friendship what, what would you say is his main legacy, like as, as, I guess, a film actor, but also just as a person who, as Phil said earlier, everyone who came into contact with him just absolutely loved him? Well, he was a real gentleman. You know, everybody enjoyed working with him because he was so much fun. And I'm sure some of the other alumni you talk with will tell you that he was always very naughty on set. And, uh, and there was just this undying love for Roger from, from people he'd worked with, people he'd met. And, and when he died, you know, the, the outpouring of love, it was amazing, you know, to, 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 to have so many people say that, that they'd been affected. And, you know, people who'd never met him as well, people who'd grown up with him, people who'd watched his movies, people who'd been touched by his UNICEF work. Um, you know, there was such an outpouring of love. And it just goes to show that so many people identified with him, so many people grew up with him or had them had him in in, the, in their lives and i think you know his legacy his films still stand i mean the, the films will always be there his books will always be there um and i think people will remember him fondly they won't remember him as a vindictive man or a, or a greedy man or a man with a chip on his shoulder they'll remember him as someone who was very very successful and who appreciated that success he was a boy from south london who never quite believed his luck and just fun to be around as well you know just an ordinary guy you could go down the pub with and have a laugh and he'd tell rude jokes and you know to have that in your life is wonderful you know or to always see the fun in things and to always have a little laugh and so yeah we miss that we miss him so that was Gareth Owen, personal assistant to Sir Roger Moore, and great to hear his stories. Uh, great to have that kind of behind-the-scenes access to Roger's life, and uh, just incredible, really, all of the people that he got to meet, all of the experiences that he had, and just lovely to hear that uh, Roger Moore was such a great man, even though his public persona was slightly different to his uh, private persona. Great that both of them seem to be uh, such a gentleman. 
Yeah, because I mean, mostly with, with stars who are that huge, they always say never meet your heroes, you'll be disappointed. But it just sounds like he was just genuinely the most lovely, gracious, charming gentleman. A toast. Per ora, e per un momento, che verrà. To this moment, and the moment yet to come. So next up is the 007 Best segment, a compilation of our seven favourite in any given Bond category. And this week, it's going to be our 007 Best title songs. Of course, music, a very subjective area. Some people even enjoy Eric Serra, don't they, Phil? But uh, let's find out what our top seven title songs were, starting with... Number seven. So in at number seven, we have You Only Lived twice from nancy sinatra it's a very very elegant and um almost soulful um kind of composition that's put together i think it's it's always one of those kind of really memorable ones that bomb fans always always think of yeah absolutely it's a bit of a goldfinger reunion actually on the songwriting team it's john barry and then leslie brickus did uh, the lyrics um but yeah it's, it's just so swooningly romantic this isn't it with that lush epic violins uh, opening the song but then it blends into the sort of Japanese instrumentation and it comes to completely envelop you in the setting and the universe of the film just the same way that the direction and the cinematography of the film do I mean when it's just sort of softly playing um, in the fishing village sequences when it's uh, Bond and Kissy you, you sort of get the sense that just like in the novel you only live twice Bond kind of could very happily retire here that is until um, a submarine incongruously emerges and picks them both up in that little rubber dinghy at the end yeah, I've always enjoyed this one. It's a bit more, uh, a bit more relaxed, isn't it, to the the other bombastic tunes that we've had prior to that. And quite interesting that Nancy Sinatra was very nervous for uh, for this recording. So apparently, she it took her many different takes, uh, so many in fact that they had to then stitch the song together. So the the one that was released is just kind of a, a hodgepodge of all of the the best bits of the songs that she did over many recordings. Though, which is also why the the sound level varies quite subtly in between different uh, parts maybe similar to our podcast uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah i've always enjoyed this one and of course uh, robbie williams used the uh, the tune didn't he for the millennium song much later so uh, yeah really really good one yeah and did that of course because robbie williams is a huge james bond fan indeed he also sings the theme tune to the film johnny english the spoof which um spoiler we will be talking a bit more about later on no one gets the phrase right in the film though the, the actual phrase you only live twice because in, in the novel and indeed in Japanese culture, I believe it's you only live twice, once when you are born, once when you look deaf in the face. Nobody gets that right in the song. It's like, you know, you only live twice, one life for yourself and one for your dreams. So it's weird that and Ben Blofeld doesn't even mention it when he brings it up in the film. Nobody gets the phrase right. I do love, as you've mentioned, Adam, I do love this is kind of almost like a dreamlike composition as well I, I just love the fact and it kind of matches with the um the opening title credits as well the fact that it's almost like this dreamlike sequence that we go through number six and in at number six it is you know my name uh, written by david arnold and written and performed by chris cornell for casino royale uh, this is the first really rock music bond song we've had for a very long time uh, and it completely sh suits i think the shift to a whole new type and tone of bond film obviously transitioning from Brosnan to Daniel Craig. Yeah, this is a fabulous song. I mean, obviously the late Chris Cornell on vocals, and it's it's just you know it, it it's almost like an explosion of sound. It's sort of you know when, particularly when you consider the last song we had before this was Madonna's kind of rather misguided electro pop 
disaster for die another day and, and then we get this amazing you know rock anthem almost yeah i think the style and tone of this one really matches quite well with the film doesn't it casino royale being a, a reboot of the series and this song being quite different from anything that we've heard previously uh, so quite a, quite a jarring noise i guess uh, quite divisive as well i was surprised to see online some people had this at the bottom of their list they they hated it the most out of all of the songs which i couldn't quite understand yeah i love this the opening riff as well it's an immediate classic it latches onto your mind straight away and it becomes its own substitute bond theme in the film of course very deliberately they are withholding the real bond theme in casino royale until the very end when he has become james bond as we know him and it's used with a lot of versatility it can be very up tempo and with big orchestration in the action sequences but then it can be really slow and kind of subtle for the scene when he puts the tuxedo on in the casino royale hotel for the first time and and he sort of properly looks the part, you know, for the first time in his agent's career. It comes back in a really lovely way there as well. I mean, maybe some people would have preferred Burt Bacharach to come back for a, a second stab at Casino Royale. A rock version of original Casino Royale, that, that would have been worth paying money for, I think, to see, see how they would have pulled that off. What, a little heavy metal? No, I'm, I'm not saying it. Or get Austin Powers to just play Bond in uh, in Casino Royale, but everyone else is taking it really seriously. I thought one this Bond maker in the world would be a good thing, baby. Number five. So in at number five, we have Skyfall by Adele. This one written by Adele and Paul Epworth. So uh, this song... So a welcome return to the, the kind of powerful ballad-like song of previous Bond themes, uh, although my brief Google research informs me that it's uh, the genre is orchestral pop. Uh, but whatever label you want to give it, uh, it's a Grammy, Golden Globe, Brit, Academy Award-winning title song. And uh, I think, again, this is another example of where the song really matches the film quite beautifully here, the lyrics just combining so well. And I guess back in 2012, Adele was kind of the perfect choice, wasn't she? The, the big name to draw attention back to the franchise after the, the previous misfire of both film and song in, in the form of Quantum of Solace. Uh, so for me, this one feels like a really modern, uh, but also quite classic Bondian notes in there as well. I think indeed, Paul Epworth did state that he wanted to try and recreate the Bond feeling, as he said, for the song. And I think it's a, a real success yeah absolutely I, th I think when you look back at kind of all the the theme tunes from all the daniel craig era this is probably the best of the lot really from from daniel craig's films and it's again as you say martin this was kind of picking the artist who was at the top of their game at this point in time because adele was kind of riding the crest of a wave of, of popularity and and you know and she was she was kind of this emerging british talent pretty much the standout choice you know nowadays you probably look at somebody like ed sheeran maybe to to pen the the next bond song or somebody like that obviously we've looked at billy eilish to do the next bond song yeah i'm not 100 percent sure i want ed sheeran doing the next bond theme but uh you're welcome to that opinion phil um yeah and again it's a song that completely suits the tone of the film this is a bond who is shattered on his last legs and having to return back to the very start to hopefully be reborn or to die. And it's an appropriately doom-laden song, isn't it? The very first lyric is, this is the end, which we see after he's just been shot and he's plummeting in that title sequence beneath the waves. Uh, and of course, it goes on to that whole opening sequence, which makes motifs of blood and tombstone imagery. I Weirdly, when I was buying the DVD of this, I was in FOP in London, and I was just looking at it, and then I heard someone just sort of singing the Skyfall theme song in a weird West Country accent next to me they were just going to oh, 
Scarfo. And I looked and it was the disgraced comedian Justin Lee Collins. I mean, his claim to fame's go. That's that's one of the more unusual ones. Of uh, he also he still sounded a bit Cockney there, Adam. He was like, scarful. Yeah, he did leave the shop singing doing the Lambeth Walk. Oi, every little Lambeth girl with a little Lambeth pal, you find us all doing the Lambeth Walk. Oi. Okay, and in at number four, we have Goldfinger, the Shirley Bassey classic um, that kind of gave her her um, introduction to the Bond franchise. Of course, she'd have two other hits um, later in her career, but this was kind of the one that everybody remembers and everybody goes to. Personally, it's one of my favourites. Um, I imagine it's one of yours as well. Yeah, it certainly is, Phil, but uh, I don't have the the penchant for wanting to uh, sing it all the time like you do. Of course, uh, whenever you hear Goldfinger, it just reminds you of Bond. It's synonymous. I mean, they just you couldn't really separate them, I don't think, Shirley Bessie's booming voice and uh, and James Bond. Yeah, I'm, I'm only surprised it's not higher up in this list. Um, it's, you know, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's impossible not to burst into a smile and get very excited as soon as that song starts. It's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's the first song where John Barry had total control of the song and the score. And so he blends it into his wider music for the film. It's dramatic when sung, but utterly beautiful when orchestrated, just when it's playing under those shots of them driving in the Swiss Alps and Bond's just tailing Goldfinger. You could just watch those scenes for half an hour with nothing happening, then just driving and the music being on, couldn't you? But there is actually quite a sinister undertone with the way that Shirley Bassey delivers the lines, you know, things like, you know, the fact that he's kind of cold-blooded and the fact that he will, you know, he's able to kill without even having any consequences or anything like that. So it's it's quite interesting that it's the first kind of Bond song that, that adds that sinister element to to what we're going to hear in the or what we're going to see in the actual film. I'd be interested to uh, try and find out if Shirley Bassey enjoys singing this one because it really looks like a it's a physical performance, isn't it? Certainly by the end, there's a lot of breath that has to be uh, held for that final note. Um, and she, I guess, she also has to kind of do a, a, a different spin on the song as well every time she sings it. Um, so it must be quite a challenge for her. Well, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to go to the John Barry Memorial concert back when he passed away, and Shirley Bassey did come on at the end and sing both This and Diamonds Are Forever. And seeing it done live is astounding. But she's very well rewarded for holding those notes. There are a few flower girls who brought on like tons of bouquets for her after each individual song, not after the two of them. Uh, Interestingly, at the same event, Michael Caine videoed in and told a story about he was there when John Barry first wrote it because he was just couch surfing as an impoverished actor. Barry was composing the music and Caine just says, and I was the first person to hear it that night. And I heard it all night. He was a bit annoyed that Barry kept him up playing it constantly on the piano. That's what it's like stopping at Phil's house. We know that all too well. He just sings Goldfinger the whole night. Number three. Okay, so in at number three, we have Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney and Wings. Only the band the Beatles could have been. Uh, So this is great, isn't it? This is the first actual hard rock uh, Bond theme song. Uh, You know, its credentials are there because Guns N' Roses, no less, have covered it. But again, like um, uh, You Know My Name, there's a kind of deliberate shift in tone in this song, which suits the coming of a new Bond actor. We've changed properly from Connery in the 60s to Moore in the 70s. And I'm not entirely sure how hard rock Roger Moore is, but that is very much the effect that uh, that the the music does in terms of distancing what we're about to see from what's gone before. Yeah, and I think again, this is kind of the Bond franchise recognizing what's kind of popular for that era. So obviously, you know, Paul McCartney and Wings was still very current at that time, and it's kind of 
you know, they clearly wanted to go in a different direction for what they were going to produce for the the Bond song. So I think it was actually an inspired choice to have um, Paul McCartney and Wings to do Live and Let Die. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, the changing, the shift in tone and style that we get actually inside the song as well. I mean, it's not really anything like Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's, uh, I mean, in the kind of shifting tone that you get inside uh, inside the song. And uh, actually, one thing that I didn't get chance to mention uh, because I didn't win enough quizzes in Series 1 was uh, Weird Al Yankovic's parody song of Live and Let Die, which was uh, Chicken Pot Pie, which was never released because, of course, Linda McCartney's uh, vegetarianism would not allow that but uh, do check that out on youtube uh, if you can but you're right about those sort of tonal shifts within the song because it, it kind of almost takes on board the voodoo culture and the self-exploitation in the film in a way that's sort of suggesting those in the music but without parodying them or being offensive does a better job of that than the actual film does in, in some places there is of course that the problem with the lyrics of this song. I mean, in general, they don't make any sense at all. And also, there's a weird tautology, isn't there, in this ever changing world in which we live in? Like, in which we live in, either we live in or in which we live. What are you doing, Paul? You can't write words to save your life. Maybe Lennon wrote them all for the Beatles. You never had to worry about it. Get a grammar book. I also love the fact that the um, the kind of other vocalists get an opportunity to to sing along to the chorus as well, where it's sort of, you know you did, you know you did, you know you did, that sort of additional well, moment as well. Kermit the Frog I, joined I, in, did he, Phil? I don't remember that part. <laughs> I was going to say, that was a very convincing impression of Kermit the Frog. Is he a man or is he a Muppet? Maybe Fozzie Bear should join in as well. Ha! Let and let die, Kermit! That sounded more like Bungle from Rainbow. Oh, I never thought I could do Bungle. I just only ever thought I could do Zippy and George from Rainbow. <laughs> so in at number two, just missing out on the top spot. Uh, it's a shame that Mr. Alan Partridge has left the building now because it's clang, clang, alang, 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 alang. It's Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, the title song for the 1977 film The Spy Who Loved Me. Interestingly, the first Bond title song since Dr. No to be titled differently from the name of the film. And also it only charted number seven in the British charts, uh, number two in the US charts. I think it was uh, deserving of uh, of better placings there uh, because I think this one really, uh, again, similar to uh, You Only Live Twice, a kind of soothing song that nicely matches the Bond character, uh, but it's not too over the top for my taste. I, I really love this one. Yeah, again, I think this is a really inspired choice for for the film. It's we'd kind of had the misstep of Lulu with um, you, uh, the man with the golden gun, and this is a perfect blend of you know the tones and the the feel of what a Bond song uh, Bond song should be. Should I say it's so reflective of what Bond is? You know, to fans, this is how we would you know kind of describe him. I mean, he is the epitome of of the greatest spy that ever lived, effectively, and this is what that song kind of conveys. Yeah, I've nothing to add to that, really. You're, you're right on all of that. It is a, a sort of poppy yet romantic ballad, and that's far more in tone with Roger Moore than, you know, we talked about Living That Die is a shift in tone, but it's not really Roger's tone. And, and yeah, Lulu's pretty terrible song for The Man With The Golden Gun. That hasn't won this poll, we should point out. But also the fact that it is a different title song to the film. You can't really do a convincing song called The Spy Who Loved Me. But Nobody Does It Better is itself now a phrase which defines Bond. If that were announced as the title of the next Bond film after No Time to Die, you'd be absolutely happy because it is just so part of that character and and, uh, that universe now, isn't it? 
Yeah, I feel if anything, it's kind of become a victim of its own success, this song, because it's used so much in kind of James Bond montage clips that we see on TV. So I think that's kind of overused. It's become a cliche for when anyone wants to show anything Bond related, which I think is a shame, really, because it's uh, I mean, I guess that's why it's used so much because it is such a good song. Uh, and also, of course, everyone's favourite, that honky-tonk chorus line version at the end, because it is Marvin Hamlish, he did write a chorus line, so we've got to have a high-kicking, knees-up version at the end of the, uh, the film. Nobody does! And let us not forget the uh, the classic Alan Partridge finale, where he, uh, of course, waxes lyrical about the greatest film ever made. Oh, oh, she's swinging on a luger. Oh, what's that? Too late. Number one. And in at number one, we have we have all the time in the world from the late Louis Armstrong, perhaps the most poignant Bond song of them all, um, of course, from one of the most poignant films of them all. What can we say? This is an absolutely beautiful song that was written and performed by Armstrong um, and shortly afterwards he passed away from a long illness. It kind of mixes those um, very elegant, very um, you know romantic tones with almost, again, a juxtaposition of Armstrong's not gravelly, but sort of very distinctive voice and very distinctive way of performing the song. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, credit where it's due, written in collaboration with John Barry and then Hal David on lyrics. Uh, Barry considered it the finest piece of music he ever did for a Bond film. Uh, and, and partly because, of course, the pleasure as well of working with Louis Armstrong, who at the time, as you mentioned, Bill, he was so ill, he couldn't even play the trumpet himself on the recording. Uh, and so taking the title of the song from those final words of not just the film, but the book on a Majesty's Secret Service as well. There's such an awful, bittersweet irony to it. You know, it's such a romantic, eternal phrase. And yet, of course, the great irony of it is that they don't have all the time in the world, that their time is constantly running out as the film ticks by. Yeah, I think uh, well put there, Adam. I certainly agree with that. And uh, I mean, technically, this one is not uh, not the title song of the, the film, which is, is also good. But I don't think let's uh, let's ignore that for, for a second, because it is such a good a good song. It deserves the top spot, I feel, on the list kind of reflects the uh, the beautiful, but also the the melancholic feel, of course, that we get at the end of the film. So, yeah, I think there's a, a not sure that anyone could say a bad word about this song. I don't know. I've never come across anyone who's who's disliked this one. Yeah, and, and kind of like You Only Live Twice, it, it's, it's sort of lived on beyond Bond, hasn't it? It's a love classic in its own right. Uh, and, and just picking up on what Phil was saying about its usage through the, the film as well in Barry's orchestration, it's really radical, actually, when he brings this song into it. It's first done, it's sung properly in the film over the romantic montage of sort of bareback horse riding along the beach and picking wildflowers in the park. And we've never seen anything that sort of lovey-dovey in Bond. And again, it comes back with a really achingly slow orchestration when he proposes to Tracy in the barn. And something about just how drawn out it is, just how long those sharp notes are, it just makes that scene even more spine-tingling than it would be just looking at Bond proposed to someone. Like, it, it just enhances the film so well. I love you. I know I'll never find another girl like you. Will you marry me? So let's move now to the James Bond Film Club. Of course, last week we entered the bizarre world of Zardos, but I believe this week we return to the world of espionage, or at least some version of it, with everyone's favourite undercover Johnny. What film do we have this time, Adam? 
Yeah, thank you, Martin. There's, there's no easy way to say this. It's it's Johnny English this week. Uh, made in 2003 uh, and starring Nigel Smallforset himself, Rowan Atkinson, uh, reprising a character he first played in a series of Barthicard adverts. Directed by Peter Howitt, but weirdly scripted by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who are, of course, the Bond writers in residence, and they'd already written The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day at this point. So actual Bond pedigree in the writing. The story is Johnny English is an MI7 clerk slash secretary, uh, but he dreams of being this sort of big Bondian spy. Uh, and he gets his chance when all the other agents of MI7 are blown up at a funeral. Uh, and so the plot uh, proper kicks in. The crown jewels have been stolen and Johnny English thinks that the uh, person behind it is the French billionaire Pascal Sauvage, played by John Malkovich in full Christopher Walken mode. And uh, he's accompanied as he pursues Sauvage by uh, his slightly more competent than him sidekick Boff, played by Ben Miller, and also by uh, the mysterious Interpol agent Lorna Campbell, played by Natalie Imbruglia, because apparently no actual actresses were available to take that on. Uh, and the film from there on in is basically a series of standalone sketches where English does either clumsy pratfalls or gets into the comedy of embarrassment where he thinks he's in control of a situation, but actually he's, he's just got it absolutely drastically wrong. Uh, it's a curiously underwhelming film, this one. I'm, I'm a fan of both James Bond and Rowan Atkinson, but there just seems to be something really lazy about this material. There are some really good gags and really great setups in this. Uh, there's a joke early on with a gadget pen, which he accidentally uses to like take out a secretary and uh, sort of while the next scene's going on, he's getting brief. They're trying to resuscitate her with like a crew of paramedics and he's completely distracted by it. So that's really good. He uses the gadgets on his car to blow up a speed camera that snapped him. But the problem is most of the gags are telegraphed way too far in advance. As soon as he announces, I have a ring that is a muscle relaxant, we're literally just sat there waiting 10 minutes because we know that he's going to hit it, hit himself with this by accident and he's going to go all floppy and sort of talk gibberish. And the fact that we're told when they're doing a parachute jump, there are two identical buildings. You have to land on this one. We know he's going to land on the other one. Everything else is just sort of silly bottom jokes or Atkinson doing physical comedy, which he's great at. We've just seen him do it so much better. Uh, and it's strangely too serious. I mean, the Aston Martin car chase is legit good because Atkinson's a proper petrol head and probably wanted to show off his driving a bit. And he's not that bad an agent. He is the only person who's onto the right guy. Um, he's just a bit arrogant and a bit clumsy, which is where the comedy comes from. And also, weirdly, Tim Piggott Smith is the M character in this film, Pegasus. And of course, he comes back as the foreign secretary in Bond proper in Quantum of Solace. So there's the, the sort of question, is this in the same universe as Bond, that this is MI7, not MI6, which is why Bond isn't there? And does that then strengthen the fan theory that Nigel Small force it from Never Say Never Again? Is, is this, it's Johnny English, but he's changed codename. We just don't know. I mean, this was a big hit in its day and it spawned two sequels. I'm just not entirely convinced it's the best use of Rowan Atkinson's time myself. OK, thanks a lot, Adam. So Johnny English, I think that my love of Rowan Atkinson overtakes everything here. And I'm, I'm fully aware that Johnny English is not a good film or a good series, uh, but I love it nonetheless. If Austin Powers is kind of the Ian Fleming, Johnny English is definitely the Kevin McClory, but I, I really do love it anyway. There's just something about the the combination of, of course, Rowan Atkinson's brilliant physical comedy. And uh, I mean, there's not much of the wordplay that we would associate with his other work like uh, Blackadder. It is mainly uh, Mr. Bean basically being a spy, isn't it? But I think that it comes from a loving place. Obviously, Rowan Atkinson really loves the James 
Bond franchise, uh, similar to Mike Myers in Austin Powers. And you can tell that the, the mockery is coming from a good place, a real sense of, of love for the, the, the Bond character and franchise. Yeah, it's kind of, you look at it and Martin, you kind of summed it up perfectly. It's literally Mr. Bean, the James Bond era. I think John Malkovich does a, an excellent job as Pascal Savage. I think he could have done a, a real Bond villain, similar to kind of an Elliot Carver. He is particularly enjoying, like, Frenching it up, isn't he, uh, Pascal Sauvage? Eliminate him. I can vaguely remember the ending as well, where Rowan Atkinson as Don English has to... Doesn't he sort of swing in where Sauvage is being hailed as the new King of England? Yeah, again, it's the comedy of embarrassment because he thinks they've replaced the Archbishop of Canterbury with some guy with a tattoo over his bottom. Uh, and obviously they haven't. It's the real Archbishop of Canterbury who Johnny English just starts to de-trouser uh, and just reveals a, a hairy old bottom instead. That, that's the level this film is on. That man standing in front of you is not the Archbishop of Canterbury. English word of advice, don't go there. Shut it, Frenchy. I'll go wherever I damn well please. So we can't delay it any longer. It's Phil's crazy theory. What have you got for us this time, Phil? And this week, I thought I'd look back at the kind of history of uh, Q. As we know, going back to kind of the much-loved Desmond Llewellyn um, version of Q, he is Major Boothroyd. Of course, that gives us the impression that he was probably once a a decorated and distinguished army um, major. The question is, though, how did he become part of MI6's setup and how did they kind of get onto their radar that he was so gifted at being able to to produce these amazing gadgets and, um, you know, equipment that were capable of saving Bond on pretty much every mission? You know, you look back at the 24 films, without fail, Q has always managed to find a gadget or device that will save Bond. And they're so specific so this is kind of a genius mind that has come up with all these inventions and all these gadgets. You know, for, for Q to be able to know that much in-depth detail about what Bond is going to face, he must have been a field agent at some point. He must have been out at least as an ally to the double O agents or, you know, he's probably gained a lot of experience in the engineering corps. The other part of my theory is thinking, how does Ben Wishaw actually fit into that whole character dynamic? We don't really know a huge amount about him at the moment either. All we know is that he is literally the quartermaster. So does that mean that he is Major Boothroyd as a younger version of that character? Or is he just a kind of Q that's been brought in to replace him? Is it just a case that Qs are just brought in over time? And it just so happened that Major Boothroyd was the one that was kind of given the longest career and the greatest longevity because he was so reliable. I mean, yeah, Major Boothroyd, Desmond Llewellyn coming from the army seems fairly incontrovertible. I mean, a major is an army occupation. Bond has come in from the Navy. That seems that seems fairly uh, appropriate. I don't agree with him being a field agent. I think he was probably an army sort of, he was in the engineering corps and that's where he first probably started to come up with these amazing gadgets. Maybe he was an apprentice to Barnes Wallace and helped out with the bouncing bomb. And from there, he sort of transfers into MI6 to, to create all of these other gadgets. In terms of Ben Wishart, I think he's just the next replacement, isn't he? Because obviously Llewellyn is replaced by R, John Cleese. Presumably Wishaw comes in once John Cleese is, uh, is, is outed in the end. And, and he's clearly coming from the more GCHQ, code-breaking, techie mathematician, Alan Turing side of intelligence. Surely that makes Ben Wishaw S, though. We've never really uh, discussed that at all. Is his code name actually S? It's just no one calls it to him. Yeah, I like the idea that we should get John Cleese back as kind of R comes back as maybe Ben Wishaw's 
grumpy granddad or something. That's maybe where the link comes in. I mean, I don't like the addition of those ideas, Phil. That sounds awful. But uh, the actual theory itself is uh, seems the most sensible of all of your crazy theory, the least crazy theory, I think, uh, this week. Uh, yeah, to go along with what Adam said about Q is obviously the replacement, I think, because of John Cleese. Uh, then, yeah, he's not really a field. I don't think he could have been a field agent because he, he treats Bond with such contempt doesn't he particularly in the the earlier movies i think he would have a bit more understanding for bond's wear and tear of his gadgets if uh, if he had previously been a field agent as well yeah and he's always extremely disgruntled to be sent out into the field even though he's going to actually quite nice exotic places like the bahamas and japan he's always irate if he were a former field agent i think he'd be happy to get back out there wouldn't he I almost get the sense that if Q had been a field agent, he probably went out with a noble double O agent who was actually quite diligent and, and looked after all his equipment. And this is just how Q views all the double O's, that they're, they're not going to destroy everything and they'll just come back with perfectly pristine items that he's designed and that he'll be able to you know, reuse them. You know, although Q's kind of gadget layer is his, uh, you know, it's kind of his happy place where he can design all these amazing gadgets you do get the sense that he does still enjoy going out in the field particularly when he goes um to Ithmus City in uh, in License to Kill you get the sense that he does actually enjoy that trip out and he did enjoy Vegas in Diamonds Are Forever let's not forget that well he profited out of that didn't he <laughs> made a mint uh, yeah maybe uh, maybe Sean Bean was very diligent with Q's gadgets. Maybe maybe he was the favourite. Well, of course, he's 006, so he's, he's one better than 007, isn't he, Phil? And maybe Q just kept going out with 001 and 2 and 3, and, and they're absolutely fine with all the gadgets, bringing back absolutely pristine condition. Oh, welcome to Japan, Dad. Is my little girl hot and ready? Look, 007, I've had a long and tiring journey, probably to no purpose, and I'm in no mood for your juvenile quips. So it's on to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. So this week we're going to delve into Thailand, which of course features in The Man with the Golden Gun. So uh, interestingly, High Fats Place, if you remember in the film, uh, that was actually filmed in the, the new territories of Hong Kong. Uh, but Thailand does get its own feature with the, the more spectacular location of Scaramanga's secret hideaway, filmed on the 400 square kilometer volcanic rock island of Khao Ping Khan in, in the Feng Na Bay which has been renamed the James Bond Island, uh, I guess, to make it easier for Bond tourists to, uh, to locate. And uh, you'll probably want to stay in a nearby tourist destination uh, of uh, Phuket in order to reach the island. The, the 007 Museum website recommends the luxurious Six Senses Villa Resort, uh, although that is quite pricey at uh, 35,000 baht a night, almost as much as that wooden elephant. Uh, and, but they can arrange a helicopter tour or a boat tour to the James Bond Island. Uh, if you're on more of a budget, uh, you can join a full day water safari from the, the Travstor Travel Management, which picks up from several hotels in Phuket. Uh, or you can get a local bus from Phuket or Krabi for around 100 baht, much more reasonably priced, and then enjoy a kayak tour or a long tailboat to explore the, the beautiful surroundings. So that one is uh, only around 2,000 baht for a three or four hour boat hire. Or, or you could go a little bit more extravagant with a 3,000 baht for a speedboat. Uh, so plenty of time to explore the, the emerald green waters and the, the sheer vertical limestone cliffs, uh, which we kind of see in the film. Uh, but I feel like those are not, uh, they're not the, the main feature, are they? Of course, we get the, the jewel 
of uh, of Moore and uh, and Christopher Lee is the main fo focal point of that uh, that particular scene. But you can uh, explore much more of the island, of course, if you if you actually go there. And the uh, the rock that stands in the middle of the uh, the water is called a Ko Tapu. That's the the famous mushroom shaped rock that we see in the background of Bond and Scaramanga's Jewel. And uh, also, I'd recommend. Uh, Patong Beach is where you can find the Iguana Beach Club, where you can enjoy a martini. And there is a, a local restaurant called Lucky 13, which apparently does some excellent cheeseburgers and falafels, of all things, in, in Thailand. Uh, so uh, do enjoy those if you're in the area. So uh, a short one this week for, uh, for Thailand, uh, but an, an absolutely stunning location. Thanks very much for that. I'd love to go to James Bond Island in Thailand. I think it'd be great. There was quite a funny story while they were filming there, apparently, in that Christopher Lee, obviously very famous for Dracula at that point, but didn't really like talking about it or like referencing it because of course he was worried about getting Time Blast as a sort of evil dark lord. You know, he managed to avoid that very successfully in his later career. But apparently uh, when they were filming on that island, there was a cave of bats. Uh, like that was sort of disrupting the shot because they kept whirling out and swooping. So Christopher Lee in front of like Roger Moore, Britt Eckland and Hervé Villachez stood on a big rock in front of the Batcave and just started going, I command you to leave this place in its full Dracula sort of mode. Yeah, I must admit, this is one of those places that's kind of still on the bucket list to, to kind of go and see. It's kind of, I mean, you look at pictures on online and it still just looks as it was in the original film. It, it does look astonishing so it's yeah it's definitely one of those places that i'd i'd really love to go and see in the near future obviously once we can actually go and visit places again yeah i have i visited Heilong bay which is is quite nearby i think in in vietnam um which is equally beautiful i think that one's referenced in tomorrow never dies as well i think it's uh, they say it's Heilong bay but actually they go back to uh, to this bay in thailand to do the the filming so uh, yeah a great part of the world is, is there a spot in Thailand where you can dress up as a fat um, Louisiana state police sheriff and get chucked into the sea by a, an elephant? If there's not, then there definitely should be. <laughs> elephant? We Democrats, maybe. Which is surprising, really, when you think about it. God damn, little brown water hog! Oh, what's the matter, J.W. Hub? You just try that in my bayou, boy! I'd hold your ass! So let's go over to Q-Branch for this week. What questions do we have this time, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. One quite interesting one that came just for a bit of fun. So if we could go back to any Bond film and improve one scene, which one would it be and why? Well, I guess politically you'd sort of uh, approach the barn scene differently in Goldfinger, wouldn't you? I don't think you'd play that out as it does anymore. Can I go back to Goldeneye and replace all the music? Well, I'll tell you what you would do, actually. You'd go back to the man with the golden gun and you'd remove that slide whistle from the car jump. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, also, the uh, can, can I add a scene in, Phil? Can I have the murder of Shady Tree? That's an incredible extra if you've seen it on Diamonds Are Forever. It really is wonderful, that, isn't it? <laughs> Just sort of slumped over. <laughs> Diamonds Are Forever could do with all of its deleted scenes putting back in because there's a great Sammy Davis Jr. one as well that was just cut. There's all the stuff with Plenty O'Toole have more scenes which explain a bit more why she ends up getting killed in Case's place in the end. That definitely needed to go back in. See, I'd say Moonraker, you'd have to go... I'm trying to think of one of the scenes that you try and improve in that one, but uh, um, I guess you'd have to try and shorten the film, perhaps, and maybe not go to as many, many locations. Maybe that's the answer. Well, just cut the film, Phil, and have him going <laughs> up in the rocket at the beginning. 
you could go back to Thunderball and play all the underwater sequences at double speed. I would actually, I'd go back to You Only Live Twice and I'd alter the opening scene so that Bond doesn't get assassinated straight away. I'd allow him to have his peeking duck. I mean, surely for political correctness, would we not remove Chew Me from The Man with the Golden Gun? Is that not a scene we'd also take out? No, I'd have Roger Moore get naked and go swimming with her for a bit and then him emerging from the swimming pool is the uh, revealing of his third nipple that Q's given him, not just the very casual, I'm going to unbutton my shirt now. You could uh, combine that with the anecdote that VJ told us last week where he's uh, kind of smoking a cigar, telling a story, and he jumps in the pool randomly with Chew Me. An interesting question that came in, would we want to see, obviously, of the, the Bond actors that are still alive, um, obviously, you know, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, in a future film, would we want to see them return? I'm sorry, George Lazenby, oh, sorry, I nearly forgot Lazenby. Would we want to see one of them return as perhaps a Bond villain or maybe a Bond um, ally in the future, and maybe in the distant future? Well, Lazenby won't be coming on this podcast, will he, Phil, after you said he's dead? <laughs> No, I just forgot. I forgot to. Sorry, George. Sorry, we we do still love you. Sorry. He's, he's got his own line of uh, he's got his own line of merchandise recently. Actually, much uh, much more reasonably priced than the 007 store. We'll have to get you something from back for your birthday, Phil. A bit of George Lazenby merchandise, and it'll just say I'm not dead on it. Um, I don't think so. No, not in the official Bond suit. We talked about Connery was going to be King Cade for a bit and it, it wouldn't have worked. Brosnan wants to come back as a villain, doesn't he? He's been quite vocal about wanting to come back as one. Again, I'm, I'm, I think it would just be a little odd in context because he is Bond in the Bond universe. As you were saying, it, I thought you were going to talk about they all do their own sort of Expendables style film. So like it's, you know, Lazenby, Brosnan, Craig Dalton united for the first time to take on some south american drugs cartel that film i'd probably watch through the power of ai you could have connery in there couldn't you so maybe a ghostly figure okay thanks guys and, and just to finish us off this week so we recently celebrated international women's day um, across the globe now we recently in a previous episode kind of waxed lyrical about our um leading bond ladies were there any from the 007 best that you think we missed that we maybe that should have been deserving candidates? Uh, yeah, BB Doll. I'm still outraged that you didn't include Jenny Flex. I'm still very annoyed about that. Jenny Flex is never getting it. Tiffany Case, the more I think about it. Did, did we just muck that up? Did, should she have been in there? Maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, Melina Havelock, I think, missed out. And, and I, was, I was very keen that she get in there. Uh, Pam Bouvier, I think, could have been in as well. Wei Lin, actually. Wei Lin, I, was, I, I, I sort of voted quite high. So shame that she didn't get into. I mean, tons that, that don't get into our list because they're only a top seven. This week, Gladys Knight, uh, License to Kill, no, no room for her either. So you know, we, there, there are plenty we love, but it's 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 tight at the top. No, 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 no! Stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So it's on to the final segment of this week's episode. Adam is in the lead for the race for the Cubby Cup, but he is the quizmaster, so it's a chance for Phil to catch up or for for me to restore some dignity. Uh, over to you, Adam. What do we have? Thank you very much. So this week the quiz is for your thighs only. Uh, we haven't had a bit of a back and forth listy quiz in a while, so I thought I'd just sort of bring that back into the equation. Uh, and I thought I would ask you in turn to name a romantic conquest of Roger Moore's James Bond. So we're going to go backwards and forwards between you. Uh, all I need is the name of a character or failing that the actress who plays them. 
that shares a romantic encounter with Roger Moore in any of his seven Bond films. And when I say romantic encounter, they either have to share a bed scene with him or simply have a little kiss with him on camera. Let's give you a life each so you can have one pass. Uh, but yeah, last person standing will get the point. So, uh, Martin, let's start with you. Let's go triple X. Yep, as played by Barbara Back in The Spy Who Loved Me. Very well done. Over to Phil. Mayday. Yes, Mayday as played by Grace Jones in A View to a Kill. Well done. Back to Martin. Melina Havelock. Yep, Carol Bouquet in For Your Eyes Only. Back over to Phil. Octopussy. As played by Maud Adams in Octopussy. Back to Martin. I can't remember the character name for now, but Gloria Hendry. <laughs> yep, Gloria Rosie Hendry. Carver, Rosie Carver, Rosie Carver. Yes, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yep, the actress is, um, is absolutely fine. So that's Gloria Hendry, Rosie Carver, Live and Let Die. Back to Phil. Stacey Sutton. As played by the late Tanya Roberts in A View to a Kill. Well done. Back to Martin. Uh, solitaire Jane Seymour. Yep. Solitaire Jane Seymour. Also live and let die. Well done. Back to Phil. Oh, Dr. Go- Holly Goodhead. Yep. As played by Lois Charles in Moonraker. Well done. Back to Martin. Corrine Dufour. Corrine Dufour. Played by Corinne Clary in Moonraker. Well done. Back to Phil. Have we said BB Dahl? We have not said BB Doll, played by Lynn Holly Johnson in Fior Eyes Only, does share a kiss, so counts. Back to Martin. Yeah, I might have to pass on this one. I'm drawing oh, a blank. He's going to pass, give himself more time, so Martin's a pass down. We go back to Phil. Is he going to use his pass, or can he think of another? Technically, Britt Eklund. I can't remember the character's name, but didn't he share yeah. with Britt Eklund? Yeah, Mary Goodnight in The Man with the Golden Gun. So, Phil does manage to go again. Martin, you used your pass, so I'm going to need one from you this time, or you forfeit the game five hours in rio for uh manuela manuela yes very well done emily bolton's manuela in moonraker five hours in rio well done it goes back to phil this i'm gonna have to risk never right i'm gonna pass on this go i'm gonna pass i'm using my pass on this go. okay phil has now used his pass so you've both used your pass it's back to martin again have we had polar ivanova we have not. Fiona Fullerton in a view to a kill. Martin stays alive. We're back to Phil. You're going to have to use that risky one at some point, Phil. Can I technically... We haven't had Maud Adams from The Man with the Golden Gun, have we? I can't remember a character's we, name. We haven't, no. You can take that. Maud Adams, Andrew Anders, The Man with the Golden Gun. I wondered if one of you might get that. So Phil survives another day. Back to Martin. Oh, my new favourite, Octopussy. I don't think we've had... Have we had Magda? We haven't. That was the one Phil couldn't get. Christina Wayborn in Octopussy. Back to Phil. I mean, surely we're running out of conquests that Bond actually had, that Roger Moore actually had at this point. You would think so, but no. This is completely wrong, but I'm just going to have to say money penny because I can't think. Brave money penny doesn't count. So, Martin, that means you take the quiz. You draw level with Phil. Two wins apiece in the Cubby Cup. Uh, the ones you, the main two probably you missed. Uh, Countess Liesel, played by Cassandra Harris in uh... For Your Eyes Only. Madeline Smith's Miss Caruso at the very start of Live and Let Die. Um, Kimberly Jones, uh, Robbie Sims' favourite, played by Mary Stavin at the start of A View to a Kill. But congratulations, good win there, Martin. Thanks, Adam, and a very good quiz there. Very enjoyable. So uh, that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us in the cubby hole. If you can't get enough of the cubby hole, do join us on social media before our next episode. Some likes, follows, always appreciated there. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. I've had a new idea for a marketing opportunity. I'm going to release my own... uh... 24 song album of Phil Sings Bond songs. There you go. I'm gonna, that's my marketing opportunity for the future.
Sorry, are you trying to get us sued now? Licence to kill your eardrums, by Philip Lindley. <laughs> You'll only listen once. <laughs>